If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis 3. And if you've had occasion to look at the back of your bulletin and you've noticed that our first Advent sermon for this year is How the Mighty Have Fallen, and you might think it rather a depressing sermon title or topic to be talking about in the season of Advent Incarnation. Well, it is to some degree but it's getting at the heart of the incarnation itself. When we begin to think about the advent, which is a fancy way of saying the coming of Christ, we begin to think about the advent of Christ. It is great and glorious if all we let it do is remain in the realm. Let me say this. It's fun and easy. It is great and glorious, period. It's fun and easy if all we let it do is remain in the realm of festivity. In other words, we like Christmas because of all the parties and the festivals and the opportunities to get together and the food and and, and the family time, and all that is well and good. But until we look at the coming of Christ in its proper context, it's easy for us to stay there. But once we understand, once we understand the advent of Christ, as coming for a particular reason in a particular season for a very particular purpose, but we begin to see things as they are. And in other words, for the advent, for the incarnation, for the coming of Christ to be good news, we have to understand what the bad news is and was. Richard and I have over the years tried to help us understand and keep Christmas in its context It's context of Christ having come into a world lost and broken by sin for the purpose of bringing salvation, for the purpose of bringing redemption. So I love the songs that we sing because if you you look at them, if you listen to them, if you allow the words to seep in your understanding, we are singing about death and loss. We are singing about brokenness. We are singing about heartache and defeat and something that rises from all of that in glorious victory in the form of a babe born in a manger in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph as the answer to humanity's problem. When we look at the Bible, beloved, it's very easy to see there's a paradigm there. There's a flow of how it works. There's a flow in the story. There's a beautiful story, and you can divide it up into four parts, which you've heard me say before, and if you've ever read anything about worldviews, what I'm about to say to you will not be new. You definitely have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the grand narrative. That is the arc of the story. You will find those four parts in different, more individualized narratives within the story, but that is the story. When we begin to think about the story that we are celebrating in the season, we need to understand that it follows a similar arc or the same arc, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. For us to understand the Advent season as, as it's presented to us in Scripture and as we celebrate it, beloved, we have to become acquainted with loss. Now, if I were to ask those of us in this room this morning, how many of us have dealt with loss in our lives? I think every hand in this room would probably go go up. Whether we've lost loved ones prematurely, 
whether we've lost dreams in our lives that we had hoped for, whether we've lost things that we have worked for, we understand what it means to lose. Without being too caustic, we are a room of losers. Now, don't, don't take that to heart too much. I'm not calling you a loser, but I'm saying we know what it is to lose. And because of that, when things have gone through a period of restoration, perhaps you've lost something in your life and you felt the loss of it deeply, and you have that something that comes along that brings a sense of restoration or redeems the loss, and there is joy. And why is there joy? Because you understand what it is to lose and to have restoration. What is the joy of the Christmas story? It is understanding what it is that we've lost and how that can be restored. What better way to begin then than in the beginning? If you follow the Genesis narrative, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are some of the most important chapters in the Bible. My seminary professor, Miles Van Pelt, used to tell us when I took a a class on just those three chapters, if you miss it here, you miss the whole story. This is where you have to grasp the idea that God created it, God established it, God put it in order, God set the parameters, God gave the law, so to speak, and then man responded in a less than glorious, worthy, obedient way. And so here we are. This morning we're looking at this. We're jumping right into Genesis 3. We're jumping right into the story of loss. After a grand pronouncement of, it is very good. So we're looking at creation this morning. God has created the heavens and earth. He spoke them into existence. One time when I was talking to our, our youth about worldview, I asked them what is the most important verse in the Bible, and you can, you can anticipate what some of the answers were, John 3.16 and several others. I can't I remember that one. And I said, actually, the most important verse in the Bible is not John 3.16. It's this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because that gets at the heart of who we are. That gets at the heart of what we see. And so this morning, we're looking at what happened. Creation is glorious. Creation is beautiful. Creation is good. And we're looking at what happens when things go awry. People go off cue. People go off path. And that's exactly where we are in Genesis 3. And this is the beginning. What you're looking at in Genesis 3 now, before Jesus ever comes, you're looking at what, what, is, what precipitates, what prepares the way for Jesus to come all the way back in the beginning. And so without further delay, I want to read the passage this morning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, specifically verses 1 to 7. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, oh, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, de- to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, this is Your time. This is Your moment. We are Your people. This is Your Word. This is Your opportunity to speak truth to us through Your Word, and I pray that You do that. I pray that as we receive Your truth, that we would be transformed and renewed. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we're looking at this particular paragraph, obviously it is part of a larger narrative in the story. It definitely goes with what precedes it as part of the creation narrative, but it's beginning to lay out what we will read about further on in Genesis. Without getting too far in the weeds, it's setting, it's setting us up to understand why Cain will kill Abel, and then why the earth will become wicked and need to be flooded, and then after that, why this will just continue to happen as a, as a period of evil that is at work in mankind in the Tower of ba- Babel, and so forth and so on. In other words, what Genesis is doing is it's telling us about a good and beautiful creative story, a creation story, but it's telling us about a flaw that happens in the beginning that is going to need to be remedied. A remedy is going to have to come to bring peace and healing and wholeness to this situation. And so this morning, as we are looking at this paragraph, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that the truth of reality is we have fallen into darkness. The truth of reality is that human beings have fallen into darkness. It should not be lost on us that a lot of the Christmas carols and hymns that we sing are about light dawning. It should not be lost on us that when Jesus is introduced in John's gospel, He is referred to as the light. It should not be lost on us when Isaiah is giving a prophecy about the coming of Messiah that he says, a great light has appeared. So, beloved, we understand that what Genesis is doing for us is giving us a deep understanding of what it means of Jesus, or the the meaning of Jesus' coming. It's not just the birth of some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago. It is the birth of a Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, but it's the dawning of a light that we need that has been lost from us. When we look at this particular paragraph and we see things as they're laid out, we we know the story from beginning to end, we can only appreciate the hope of light when we see the darkness. Have you ever been spelunking? And yes, that is a real word. Basically, it's a fancy way of saying in, in caves. Have you ever been in a deep cave, a deep cavern somewhere? Or maybe even in this room, when you shut the lights off and you close the doors, it's pretty dark in here. We can, that darkness is thick, and you can feel the darkness in front of you. It lays heavy. But how dazzling is it when a light comes on and it immediately illuminates everything? Only then do we appreciate how deep the darkness actually is. The coming of Christ is the light. It's the light that we see 
in the sea of darkness, both spiritual, mental, emotional. So often when we think of people's needs, especially as how do we, how do we come alongside people and be friends? Beloved of God, I'm telling you, I'm not saying every issue is simple, but so often there is a rather simple solution to people who are having emotional struggles, mental struggles, spiritual struggles. They're having a problem finding the light in the darkness. And one of the things that we want to do is help point them to what is true, right, and good, and beautiful, which is Jesus. When we come to the story without introduction, with no story, with no explanation, we immediately are told in Genesis 3, now remember, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no shame, there's no sin, there is no immorality on the earth, so we're, we're getting a picture of that. Now immediately in, in chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I'm going to stop right there for a second. The snake is introduced with no backstory, with nothing, no explanation. Now, we should know that in ancient literature, snakes and serpents are a common imagery, imagery tool, that they will be used to communicate evil, and they will be used to communicate wisdom or, or something along those lines. So in the story, we're immediately alerted to this. There's a snake who comes up, and it's interesting to me that no one ever deals with the fact that it talks, but it talks, and Eve is not put off by this. So whatever that is, we'll set that aside for now, and, and maybe we'll come back to that another time. But the serpent, it says, was more crafty. That word there might give you the implication that the word crafty is meant to communicate something negative. It's actually not. The word means clever or shrewd. And so when the serpent comes to approach Eve, who's described as more crafty, he's more shrewd, he's more clever than the other beasts of the garden, we're getting a sense of who he is and what his abilities are. So not necessarily negative, so let's just keep that in mind. But what we see here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, with his cleverness, with his shrewdness, begins to introduce something into the story that doesn't quite fit. When J.R.R. Tolkien decided to write a creation myth for his whole world, you know what he did? He had the grand being, Iluvatar, which was the creator God, singing a song, and the world was a result of this song. But what happens is, is that one creature decides he doesn't like the song that Iluvatar is weaving, so he introduces a discordant note in there, and that begins to mess up the creation. That's exactly what's happening here. Satan, the snake, has created a discordant note Everything is going on a cycle that God has put it on, and, and now you have this discordant note. What we would say is, it's the first act of rebellion. God had proclaimed everything good, and the snake is beginning to question the goodness of God. This is the first act of rebellion that we see in Genesis 3, before Eve rebels, before Adam rebels. This is the first act of rebellion. But what we need to understand is that this snake, like Adam and Eve, he was made by God. The Lord God had made him. 
And so he is subservient to God. He is, he is inferior to God, but he is acting in opposition to God. He is doing something that is seeking to thwart the will of God. Beloved, he is introducing a fall into the story. Eve doesn't see it yet. She won't see it till it's too late. Adam doesn't see it yet. He won't see it till it's too late. But he's taken the goodness of creation and he's introducing a crack in the foundation. Very subtle. I mean, it's, it's pretty overt in the sense that they disobey. But this crack in the foundation is designed to destroy the whole structure. What does the serpent know that Eve hasn't quite, and Adam hasn't quite got their hands around yet. They're made in the image of God. They have something special. They have a connection with God that this creature seeks to disrupt. He is seeking to do something that will require redemption and restoration. So the first question he asks is, did God really say or actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What is this? This question is a misdirection. He's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning God's grace. He's questioning God's provision. You know what he's doing? He's inviting Eve into, he's laying the foundation for a sin. He's, he's, he's spinning a web for Eve to get caught into of sin. But this gives us a good glimpse in what does sin do? Think to yourself for a moment. Ask yourself, what sin patterns have I gotten off into lately? Or what sin patterns have I gotten off into in my life? What does sin do? It generally creates a seeming need, right? I have to have this thing. I need this thing. And so what it does is it creates a seeming need that is en route to a very bad choice. I need this thing. I've got to have this thing. So I'm going to make a choice for this thing and forget all the other consequences. This may have a ripple effect, but right now this thing... It's too important to me. This need, I'm going to put that in quotes, this quote-unquote need is too important to me. I've got to have this thing. That's exactly what the serpent is doing for Eve here. He is creating a seeming need and offering a solution to said need that is a bad choice. It's a very bad choice. And it's easy for us to see it. But, beloved, it's not so easy when it's our lives and the thing is presented to us and we make the bad choices. That's what sin does. So, in, in keeping in the conversation, and the woman said to the serpent, now again, she doesn't question that he's talking, she just answers him. We may eat of the fruit of the, of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So the woman reasserts. What does she do here? She reasserts God's goodness, God's provision. God is good. He's given us any fruit that we can eat, any fruit in the garden. We have plenty there's much for us to eat and enjoy here. So this is good. But then there's a clear boundary established. She doesn't name the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What she does is says the tree in the midst of the garden. Well, either way, she creates a boundary. She says this is what we can eat, this is what we can eat. But what does she do now? Then she misconstrues the command of God. Beloved, whether this is pure ignorance or whether this is Eve's zeal, the, the text never says that we don't really know. But what we do know is that God said, don't eat it. She says we shouldn't eat it and we can't touch the tree. So she begins by 
that her first steps away from what is good and true is misconstruing what God actually said. Why is the Word of God so important? Why here at the chapel do we herald that the Word of God is supreme? Because that's what gives life. And when we step away from that, that leads us into a pathway of death. Or we might could argue that maybe Eve is making a bid for holiness that is not of God, trying to raise the stakes of showing what I can't do to show you that I'm holy. We need to be careful of that. Let us follow the clear precepts of Scripture in the yeas and the nays and let the other chips fall where they may. Because Eve had not been told not to touch the tree. She and Adam had been told not to eat of its fruit. When we think about this at, at any time, what is the simplest advice that we could give one another when it comes to holiness? Is beloved of God, it's this. Simple, good old-fashioned obedience to the clear Word of God. If we make those choices, that is a pathway to holiness. God said don't eat of the tree, so we're not going to eat of the tree. Yet sure, we can touch it, we can brush up against it, we can prune the ground around it. We can even prune its limbs, but we're not going to eat its fruit. There's something to be said about avoidance in terms of seeking to, do, uh, to keep obedience. There's also something to be said about engaging also as a matter of holiness to herald the Word of Christ. In this particular instance, the best avenue for holiness is obedience. In every instance in the Christian life, the best avenue for holiness is obedience. That is mighty convicting to me. I find myself convicted by the truth and reality of that because we, it's easy to make more of a thing than it is. And sometimes it feels right to make more of it. See here, it began Eve down a pathway of death. Because once she opens that door just a little, the serpent knows she doesn't have a firm grasp on the Word of God. Clearly, now. Now I know that door's been cracked open. She doesn't have a firm grasp on the Word of God. Adam is allowing this to happen. He clearly doesn't have a firm grasp on the Word of God, and it introduces a fault line. What did Eve say? She not touch it lest you die. What does that tell us about the text itself, beloved? In, in, in the good of creation, God introduced a pronouncement of judgment against disobedience. Don't eat of that tree. Because in the day of, that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, that, that word death there, it's, it takes some unpacking, and I'll probably get into that more next Sunday, God willing. But what we need to know for now is God has promised judgment for disobedience. That is the crux of the matter here. That is the beginning of understanding of why does Jesus come some several millennia later. Because of this right here, we're beginning to see exactly why the world needed redemption and the world needed restoration. What do we see the snake do? The servant said to the woman, yeah, you won't surely die. You won't really die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what's fascinating here? Have you ever thought about it? That what he says is in some senses not wrong? They won't literally die. They're not going to fall over dead. So in that way, he got it kind of right. That their eyes are going to be open. That's exactly what verse 6 says when they ate it, that their eyes were opened. 
And they are going to know right from wrong. For, for the first time, they will know what it means to disobey, i.e., this is right, this is wrong. At this point, they know only to do what is good and right and beautiful. Don't you see? Can we see the craftiness of that? The deception of that? Taking half-truths and spinning them out? to make them appear like wisdom, to make them appear, appear like knowledge. And so when people go around saying, yeah, well, people are basically good, they have no concept of what sin is. When people make that statement, because they don't know how deeply deceived we actually are in everyday life. Because the enemy of our soul doesn't just say, hey, there's pink elephants floating in the sky. He says, hey, the sky is blue and the clouds are there, but those clouds are not really from God. What they are is purely this X, Y, or Z, giving us some notion of truth while keeping us blind to the ultimate truth behind it. That's how Satan works. We're rational creatures, so he appears to the rational mind, you see. The snake contradicts this judgment, God, or you won't surely die. What we're getting there is the enticement in. We've got the crux of the matter. He questions judgment. You won't surely die. He makes a statement enticing Eve and Adam, Adam and Eve into this. You see, here's what it does. What is he doing? He's setting the table for a form of life. Paul would later in Timothy write about a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The snake is offering to Eve a form of life that is no life at all. It's a death. It's, it's, it's the breaking. It's the, it's the shattering. It's introducing a wrinkle of distrust toward God, of disobedience toward God, and a belief that I, me, myself, am the measure of all things. This Christmas season, beloved of God, if you're sitting in here and you know Christ, praise God, but if you don't, one of the truths is that Jesus is coming to rescue you and me from is this notion that I am the measure of all things. We are not. We are created in the image of God to live in relationship with God, to be obedient to God, and to love God with all our soul, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. The snake introduces this offer this form of life, that's what sin will always offer you, a form of life that can only give death. If you've been lost in a season of sin before, even as a believer, gotten caught up into a season of sin, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that offering of life for a moment that brings guilt, shame, and death. Merry Christmas. God builds on this story. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Divine. Not just in the image of God. He's offering them divinity. And we'll see this, we'll see this same ploy again. Right? We'll see the same tactic again. But for now, He's offering them a sense of divinity. So, naturally, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, that you'll know good and evil. Before I get to verse 6, I want to reference something. In Matthew chapter 4, I won't turn there now in the interest of time, verses 1 to 11, you can write down that. We have Jesus being sent out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Remember, Satan makes three salvos at Christ. Turn the bread or turn the stones into bread. Throw yourself off from the temple mount and let the angels capture or catch you or bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these things. Three of the same temptations he offered to Eve. She saw that the tree was good for food. Turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You can do that. You can, you can avoid this fast. You can avoid what the Spirit is doing in you and through you. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. No, Jesus, go to the temple mount. Throw yourself from the temple and show all who you really are. That God is not going to let you be killed. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hey, bow down and worship me, Satan said to Jesus, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, avoid the cross and take the easy route. You see what Jesus did. Jesus comes at Satan knowing the word of God. Eve did not. And so as Eve was promised that your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, you'll know good and evil, she was brought into this. Jesus stands firm. But then you get to verse 6. When the woman saw, she was delighted and she desired. It should not be lost on us that in 1 John, he captures this idea. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It is not lost on John as he's writing the people about sin. What is it that comes at us? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So how does this connect? What, what is it that we are aiming for? But we need an answer to that, and it's not going to come from us. It's not just going to well up inside of us one day. We're just going to automatically and, and out of the blue just stand firm against those things. No, 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 no. There is a brokenness there that has been shattered, and we need one who can begin to mend it back together, to restore this good image, and His name is Jesus So the woman saw, she delighted, and she desired. And so she took and she ate. And she gave some to Adam and he ate. Now, just so you know, in Hebrew, the pronouns, and here's the snake is talking to the woman, are plural pronouns. It doesn't come out in English very well. You'd have to read it in the language to understand that the pronouns are plural. She's not just talking to Eve. Adam is there. She's addressing them both. She's laying it out for them both. And she's inviting them both in. Adam, Adam, being the one who received the command and should have taught it to Eve, is in error here for allowing his wife to be duped. And so they both ate it. They both traded light for darkness that day. What is Adam's failure in this? Adam did not 
advocate for the truth. He sat silently by. Adam did not protect his helpmate that God had so generously put on the earth. Adam didn't create Eve. Adam didn't make Eve. Adam was ma- or Eve was made by God for Adam so that they could come together in a complementary way and support and love each other. And one of the failures that he did is he allowed it to happen. Well, it should not be lost on us what a failure that is. Because you see, when the second Adam comes, Jesus Christ, who makes a bold stand for his bride, he does not turn her over to Satan. He made a stand for his people at Golgotha, at Calvary, and said, I will give my life for my bride, that my bride might be free. And so as we look at this, one of the last things we're told here is something very fitting. What did Satan promise? God knows in the day that you eat it that your eyes will be opened. What do we read? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Satan had said, oh, no, 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 no. He knows that your eyes will be open, allowing Eve to believe that she was somehow going to have this deeper, more secret knowledge that was not privy to her. Satan knew exactly what that meant. When Adam and Eve's eyes are open, beloved, they are open to shame and guilt and defeat. They're not open to victory. They're open to understanding just how defeated they actually are. How do we know how defeated they are? That their first instinct is to hide. Hide themselves from one another where there was no shame. And eventually we're going to see hide themselves from God because even under His piercing gaze, despite the loincloths, they are naked. And in the noonday sun before the eyes of God. Beloved, Satan did his work really, really well. Into this good creation, he introduced, or he helped introduce, the fall. And so when we come to Advent, as we celebrate, as we sing joy to the world, there should be a reason that our hearts well up, even in tears, that as far as the curse is found, Christ has conquered. Because you know where that curse began? In us. And it rippled out into all creation. We'll read about it next week, Lord willing. We'll get the rest of the story. And so when we look at this, what does this tell us? What what, what are we beginning to see very clearly? Well, the idea that we're beginning to see very clearly is that the darkness for our world, of our world rather, the darkness of our world, it yearns for something. It yearns for the incarnation. It does. People don't know it. People don't always see it. When, when, when we live in a sea of sin, when we live in a culture that is confusing genders, that is confusing God's sexual ethic, that has no real concept of morality, what I'm telling you is it needs the incarnation. That is the answer. Where did all this begin? It didn't begin in the new philosophies of Germany. It didn't begin in the Enlightenment. It didn't begin with the Romans. It didn't begin with the ancient Greeks. It didn't begin with the Persians. It didn't begin with the Sumerians or the Assyrians or the Akkadians. It began in the garden. And in the garden, God said, this is going to be the answer. I'm going to go ahead and steal my own thunder. But God will tell them, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Oh, there's a seed of the woman who's coming, who is going to be the answer. And so the darkness of our world, beloved, this morning is yearning for the incarnation. We sing those songs, and, and I hope that you feel the weight of what they're saying to us. We're going to sing, Oh, Holy Night, here in just a few minutes. And the, the, the call to fall on your knees and hear the angel voices, Oh, night divine, oh, night that Christ was born. Why, why is it worth celebrating? Well, it's, it's not worth celebrating if all it is is just a thing we do. If it's just a thing, it's a fun game, it's a, it's a party we go to once a year, or it's the exchange of gifts, or, or maybe our bosses or friends are a little nicer. If that's all it is, God have mercy. But when we understand, when we truly understand that there is a sea of brokenness in us and in our midst and all around us that has one answer, and His name is Jesus, we belt it out. Because on the night that Jesus was born, God said, enough to death and darkness. And He raised Him up to send Him to the cross so that in Him we would have everlasting life. And that is the message of Christmas. It is. Now, you can't really separate Christmas and Easter, really. They go together. They're meant to because they are the answer to the darkness. So this morning, here's what I would say as we close. The mighty have fallen. The world is fallen, but Jesus Christ is raising it up one soul at a time. And we have opportunities as believers to be conduits of that truth. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning and its power, its rich beauty, the grace that You have given us in it. Oh, Father, may we be faithful. Uh, thank You. Thank You. God, for the bad news. We have to see it. We have to see it. To celebrate the true meaning and the richness of this season, we have to see just how ugly it gets before restoration occurs. But you are a redeeming, restoring God. You bring hope to the hopeless, life to the dead, and eternity to those who are perishing. Father, may we stand in your truth. May we reflect your light and as we say, Merry Christmas this year, may it be with the joy that we are delivered from sin through Christ. It's through His name we pray. Amen.